In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. All right, welcome back to another episode of Theology Applied. I'm your host, Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. And in this episode, I am very privileged to welcome back to the show, William Wolf. William, thanks for coming on. Joel, glad to be back. I think this is my third time, so three times a charm. Well, let's go ahead and hop right into it. We want to talk about controversy, handling controversy, why there is controversy among the Reformed Christian camp. But before we get to that, I think there's you know some intertwining between these two topics. Let's start with uh, Aaron Wren and the recent article that he wrote addressing fundamentalists. You had some great thoughts on that, but go ahead first uh, for our listeners and anybody who may have not read the article, give us a synopsis. Yeah, thanks. Aaron Wren is, you know, he's a commentator on the evangelical world. He's from a consulting background, which is interesting, sort of like how I bring a particular political background to my assessment of evangelical issues. Aaron Wren brings a consulting class background. So he's analyzing systems, the way that they function a lot of times without necessarily weighing in too much on like the pros and cons of those systems, but pretty much looking at who the actors are and, and what they're doing. And he recently had a piece in his newsletter on his blog entitled, Who is a Fundamentalist? And he, he, he touches briefly on the history of fundamentalism, doesn't get into it too much, and I could cover that more. But just if people aren't paying attention, you know, who is a fundamentalist? The, the term fundamentalist really arose in the early 1900s as you get um, past the J. Gresham Machen and Henry Fosdick battle over the inerrancy of Scripture. And there's this sermon preached by the liberal Fosdick, you know, shall the fundamentalists win? And at that point, the battle was over, you know, believing in things like the virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture, the, vol- the validity of Jesus's miracles, the total comprehensive authority of God's word for our lives. And the liberals at that time, the modernists, really, it was fundamentalism versus modernism. They were trying to update the Bible for the modern era. We see in each era that the church is confronted with new theories from the world. We have to choose how to respond to them. Well, unfortunately, we've seen what we call liberals often respond by sort of changing the Bible to appeal to the modern era. And the fundamentalists at that time said, no, we have to stick to the scriptures. That continues to grow. Then you get Carl F.H. Henry. He has the uneasy conscience of a modern fundamentalist in 1947. So this is a conversation that's been going on for decades. And really now in American evangelicalism, we have 
pretty much everybody's a fundamentalist, quite frankly, according to the commitments of broad swath evangelicalism. But what Aaron Wren has done, he's come in and he's given us a great insight that now fundamentalism is much less about a commitment to core theological beliefs, and it's more about an overall posture towards adjudicating those how those in power in evangelical circles should approach the world. And he has sort of this really pithy, uh, you know, one sentence summary, and I'll read it for you guys here because I have the article up where he says, in his perspective, a fundamentalist now, practically speaking, will be anybody who challenges the incumbent power structures from the right. And so that's a really key insight. So if we think about incumbent power structures in evangelicalism over the last decade plus, we can think of what the young restless reformed resurgence has built, the gospel coalition, you know, the, the last dying ebbs of Christianity today, other major conferences. Now there are many brothers, yourself included, myself included, Acts 29 would be a good example of a power structure of sort of modern evangelicalism that those of us on the right are now critiquing because we think that they're overly compromising with the world. And so that gives us a new paradigm to understand how this label is going to be used. They're going to label people as fundamentalists, not necessarily because of the things they believe and not necessarily because as the historic fundamentalists did, they retreated from the culture, drew hard lines of separation and said, we won't work with anybody who disagrees with us on anything. But really, it's going to be people like you and me. And then he uses uh, an individual, James Wood, as an example of somebody who's actually pretty, dare he say it, winsome and and soft spoken and gives a fair treatment to people like Keller and yet still critiques them. Even someone like that is going to be labeled a fundamentalist. And so here we are now. And my my thank you for giving me this long opening monologue here. But my my political insight on this is is as such. As we look at how the establishment operates in the evangelical Christian world, the overlap with how the establishment operates in the political world is essentially that Venn diagram is essentially a circle. And in the same way in the political world, you get people labeled deplorables or far-right extremists. Now, fundamentalists in evangelicalism are going to be those same people. They're going to be the people that the moderates, even though they say they believe everything we believe, will refuse to work with to codify the beliefs of evangelicalism, and thereby, ultimately, they'll let the the liberals win unless we are able to convince them or have enough right. turnout at things like the SBC to main, maintain control of conservative evangelical institutions. Well said. Man, that was a great synopsis. I, I didn't want to say a heck of a synopsis because you might think that I was joking about the length, but I will never give anybody a hard time about length uh, because <laughs> that would be the pot call, calling the kettle black. Um, the whole time you were talking though, I kept thinking, you know, you could just take the same premise and apply it to uh, Christian nationalism, right? Like part of the reason why you and I were willing to wear that badge and to wear it proudly to say, Hey, you know what? Maybe not my first choice, but yeah, I am a Christian nationalist. I'm going to roll with it and I'm not going to be uh, embarrassed about it. Part of the reason why we were willing to do this is because we realized that all the guys who, uh, many of them are good brothers. We're not saying they're not Christians or anything like that. We're saying they're good brothers. A lot of them are not just good brothers, but they're biblically qualified men. They, they, they're, they're qualified to be good brothers and good pastors. And yet we just felt like at the end of the day, these guys, they're, they're, they're making all these efforts in their language and their blogs and their articles and podcasts and sermons to, to bifurcate themselves, distinguish themselves from Christian nationalism. And yet, if the libs win, um, you and me and G3 
are going to be sharing a cell together in the gulag. Like they're, they're not going That's to right. say, you know what, <laughs> Josh Bice, he's not a Christian nationalist. He's okay. And and here's the funny thing. And Josh knows that. And I'm not picking on him. But my point is, um, my point is that not only will you get called, uh, will you get treated as though you're the enemy, you're a Christian nationalist, but you'll get called a Christian nationalist. I found this interesting recently, and you may be able to to cite the example more specifically because I'm just. I, I don't have the specifics of it, but I know that there was some organization that uh, that listed um, sovereign nations with Michael O'Fallon, who is a brother in Christ, but listed him and his organization as Christian nationalists, which I just, I looked at it and I couldn't help but laugh and, and not picking on anybody or anything like that. But I couldn't help but laugh because I just thought, oh man, I feel I feel bad for the guy because he he's gone to such great lengths to insist and to distinguish and to caveat, you know, that he is not a Christian nationalist. But in the view of the world, in the view of of you know the 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 the, the, the moderns, um, there's they don't they're not going to look at at Michael O'Fallon and then look at me and say, you know what. One of these are are these are good guys, and the other one's not. They're they're going to just say, "Yep, they're both Christian nationalists." And so I'm just saying, "Hey, I'm a Christian nationalist." Somebody else is saying, "I'm not a Christian nationalist." The world's going to look and say, "They're both Christian nationalists." And so it just seems it seems silly. And I think part of it is still coming off the heels where we, you know, going back to Aaron Rin again, you know, his his negative and and neutral world, and and then um, and po- positive, negative, and uh, positive, neutral, and negative world. Well, in the in the neutral world that we're now leaving in terms of the world's, uh, is, is there hostility? Is the general disposition a hostile disposition towards Christians? Or is it a positive disposition? Or is it more indifference and neutral position? Um, and that's and, and these categories are not theological categories. If somebody's lost, then you know the mind of the sinful man is hostile towards God. It does not submit to his law, nor can it. But we're talking about Christian culture, which, which you and I both see as a net positive good. But the point is, in, in a world that, that was leaving Christianity but hadn't quite left in the West, we, we were kind of on our way from being a Christian culture to pagan culture. And on the way, uh, there was this optic for a moment, a long moment, multiple decades, but a moment in the big scheme of things of this neutral world effect. And in a neutral world, um, a guy like Russell Moore could actually have some benefits by making a 17 caveats and a million different disclaimers and saying, well, I'm not like them. I actually, you know what I mean? In a neutral world, they might actually see the distinct uh, distinction being made by someone like a Russell Moore and say, okay, well, he's not as bad as that guy or, you know, what, whatever. Um, but in the world we're entering now, uh, in a hostile world where, where the, the remnants and the effects uh, of Christian culture are waning and and there's very little fumes left in the tank and and we're moving from neutral to hostile world. Um, people are going to look at at G3 and they're going to look at Right Response Ministries and they're going to look at William Wolf and they're going to say like like Pam from the Office that meme you know it's the same picture that it, it, it just you, you don't gain a whole lot. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, you know, let me let me propose a, a, a brand new paradigm. Here we go. I, I've been kind of noodling on this and it just kind of popped into clarity. When it comes to labels like these, whether it's Christian nationalism or whether it's fundamentalist, what I think the dividing line, you could consider sort of three buckets in terms of the evangelical world. Are people allergic to that label? Are they apologetic to that label? Or are they accepting of that label? And I think this really ties in to the fundamentalist uh, bent that Aaron's getting at here, because you'll notice that that many of these men who are, um, we'll say, 
allergic at best or you know, allergic at worst or apologetic at best of the labels fundamentalist Christian nationalist. They're ones in institutional positions, maybe professors at seminary, maybe they're guys who have sort of more right. respectable platforms in the world. And you'll notice that these leaders posture themselves. The crowd over here, the unwashed masses are accepting of the label. And then they are lumped in with those people by the world. So then they either have to be entirely allergic to it and deny it and denounce it and try to defeat it, or they'll be very apologetic about it. And what they do is they have their eye on the New York Times and secular sociologists and try to defend the unwashed mashes who accept the label, but try to tweak the term a little bit with it. And so I think that posturing is very important in evangelicalism today. I think many people are looking for leaders who are accepting of the labels who are willing to stand with the masses contra the world and sort of instead of sorting to set of instead of sort of trying to stand between the masses in the world apologizing for these labels that are getting applied right. to them fundamentalist christian nationalist etc so you and i are definitely in the accepting camp of many of these some of our brothers are in the apologetic camp and then many others are completely allergic right. they don't want anything to do with them that's good accepting apologetic allergic i like it Triple A. Finally, a coffee company that doesn't hate you and your beliefs. Today's sponsor, Squirrely Joe's Coffee, is a thoroughly Christian company that ships seriously good coffee straight to your front door. Owned and operated by Joe Morris and his family out of Olney, Illinois. Joe also serves as a pastor of a small reformed church. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. They also donate a portion of their proceeds to Operation Underground Railroad to help end child trafficking. Just go to squirrelyjoes.com and use promo code RRM for 20% off your purchase. Squirrely Joe's Coffee, share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Our sponsors, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risk. To join this growing community that is already building wealth unto future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking Partner Chuck DeLotteronte at his email chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. That's Chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Set up an appointment and receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street and Avoid the Coming Banking Meltdown. Go to the links in the show notes below. Are you looking for a Christian-owned and operated cattle company that delivers high-quality beef to your doorstep? If so, you'll love Mercy Meadows Ranch. Our friends at Mercy Meadows share our values and vision, making the Dominion mandate a reality. They raise top-quality beef without any vaccines, hormones, or antibiotics. To celebrate their fall bulk beef launch, they're giving away a free 10-pound box of ground beef to one of our listeners. You could be the winner of this amazing grass-fed, grain-finished beef. Are you looking for beef to fill the freezer? 
then check out their delicious steaks, roast, fajitas, and ground beef shipped free directly to your door. Don't miss this chance to enter this incredible giveaway. Just click the link in the description below to enter the giveaway. Mercy Meadows Ranch is the best choice for Christian families who want to eat healthy and support Christians serving Christians. All right. That's really helpful. Anything else you want to talk about with uh, Aaron Wren and that particular article on fundamentalism, or do you want to go ahead and shift gears now and talk about controversy? Well, I think that another important insight that Aaron draws out and that I myself have noticed too, which is that it really comes down to, are you willing to critique uh, the existing crop of leadership in any way, shape or form? And Keller, again, is a very good test case with his recent passing you know, you, you see that that essentially the, the leaders of the young, restless and resurgent movement are uh, completely opposed to anybody who would question Keller's legacy, provide any critiques of it, you know, say that right. maybe he did some thing, good things, but not other things. As soon as you do that, whether it's with Keller, whether it's with Russell Moore, whether it's with David French, as soon as you have critiques to provide for them or, or even maybe more center right figures, you know, who who maybe are strong on other issues, who drop the ball on others, as soon as you critique from the right, you become a fundamentalist. And so that's something that people need to be aware of when they see this being thrown around. It's not because they believe in the inerrancy of scripture. It's not because they believe in biblical gender roles. It's because they're on the right side of things critiquing you know, issues and postures of the day. Whereas on the left side of things, if you critique from the left, you'll be welcome. You'll be given a seat at the table. You'll be tried, they'll try to win you right. over. And uh, so heads up, the false dichotomy will exist as people try to paint the two extremes as ex-evangelicals and fundamentalists or ex-evangelicals and Christian nationalists. And really, it's just a posture game. Uh, with that, I just had a thought, uh, and I, I'm curious to get your take. But I think part of it might be because of just where institutions, because of the fact of where institutions actually exist. So what I'm trying to say is, um, if you critique from the left, you said like you'll be, you know, you'll be accepted. You critique from the right, and you'll you'll be deemed an extremist. Um, you know, the, the words that I'll often get, you know, is uh, dangerous. Um, and this is from Christians, you know. And and again, I'm not. I, I'm saying they're brothers. I'm not questioning. I'm not saying these, these are professing Christians. No, I, I really believe they're genuine uh, Christians. Many of them, I think, not just good Christians, but qualified to be pastors. Some of them, maybe. Um, qualified to be pastors, but maybe should, you know, maybe just get off of Twitter for a little while, just for the good of their soul, you know, those kinds of things. But, um, so I, I'm not disparaging any of these brothers. My point is, um, the pushback that I'll get is, uh, the, the, the key terms will be, um, dangerous. They, they, so they won't say he's a heretic or he's a wolf. It'll be like wolf-like or, um, or dangerous or, um, let scary, me think, uh, scary, uh, Oh, oh, here, here it is. Here it is. I'm concerned, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the I'm concerns. concerned, right? Exactly. And so I call them the concerned bros, you know, because you and I would get labeled as Theo bros. And I thought, you know what? Okay. Theo bro. Fine. I could just like Christian nationalism. I can work with it. Um, I don't appreciate it. I know it's a pejorative. You're making fun of me, you know, but, um, but Theo bro. Yeah, there are Theo bros out there and, um, and I'm happy to be one of them. And, and there are some that, you know, that, okay, man, rein it in, you know, like let's, you know, and I'll and maybe try to talk to them offline or something like that. Hey, I, I don't think we, I think that's too far or whatever. So I'm not saying that, you know, everybody in that camp is, is uh, perfect, 
by any stretch of the imagination. But again, I'm not going to disparage them. I'm, 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 I, that doesn't mean I'm not going to correct them. That doesn't mean I'm not going to, um, to hold them accountable, but I'm not going to publicly embarrass and publicly disparage those kind of things with the Theobros. That said, if there is such a thing as Theobros, um, there is very much such a thing as concerned bros. I'm con concerned, very serious, very somber, very concerned. They're very concerned about you, William. They're very concerned about me. Uh, they're very concerned, you know, and so the concerned bros are a thing. And so my point is, uh, the concerned bros, if I say something, you know, that back to that fundamentalist kind of thing, like I'm critiquing from the right, like some of the things that the main things that I get in trouble for is I, I will critique pietism, nihilism, and Gnosticism. Um, now I always say this, I'm always careful, um, in the sense that, you know, that I, I'm not saying, uh, Gnosticism, capital G, um, to the T Gnosticism proper, which would be a heresy, but Gnost, uh, Gnosticistic, Gnosticism leaning, a bent, an element, a, a degree of Gnosticism. Same with pi, not pietism, uh, capital P, but pietistic, pietist leaning, uh, those kind of, and then nihilism, not nihilism to the T, not all the way, not capital in nihilism proper, but saying, no, I think, but I think there is a little bit of, of, fatalism nihilism here that, that this sense of of we, we you know we can't win we're, we're we're um we're destined to lose you know that kind of stuff so all my point is when i make those kind of critiques and those are probably usually my three big critiques and it comes in the form of you know my post-millennial eschatology or it'll come in the form of christian nationalism or it'll come in the form whatever but when i make those critiques to the right and me being in this instance, in a lot of instances, I'm right there with them. But in these instances, I'm about an inch further to the right than they are. Not a mile, but a little bit further to the right than they are. But there's still, it's still worth critiquing. It's still worth noting. When I do that, I get the response of, oh, yeah, I'm concerned or dangerous or wolf-like or, or whatever it might be. Um, all that being said, the reason, back to the institutions, the reason why I think there's so much acceptance when there's a critique to the left is because if you critique, if, for instance, just using somebody, not just a Tim Keller or something like that, let's, let's use John MacArthur. And the reason why I want to use John MacArthur is because John MacArthur's great. So hear me. I'm starting with that. He's great. I appreciate him. I respect him. Um, John MacArthur has, has learned and forgotten more things about the Lord than, than, than I've ever known. And so, you know, John MacArthur is wonderful. Um, I do have some some areas where I disagree, dispensationalism, premillennialism, those kinds of things. But the the headline of the story is John MacArthur's wonderful. That said, if I, while acknowledging the headline that John MacArthur Carther on the holes is wonderful, I come and say, but I'm a little bit worried about the we lose down here clip that was circul circulating around. And I did a response video to that. Boom, I'm gonna I'm gonna get hit hard. If I was on the left of John MacArthur, and I critiqued him. I think the reason I would get accepted by institutions is because there are thousands of institutions that actually exist to the left of John MacArthur. One of the reasons you don't get accepted into, you don't get institutional acceptance when you critique from the right is because I think, William, there uh, part of the problem is there are no institutions to the right of John MacArthur. That's, that's as far as the institutions go. And I think part of the difficulty that you and I and some other young guys as we're trying to move the ball forward and we're trying to kind of get out of boomer theology and get, you know, the post-war mentality and get back to, you know, John Gill and get back to like some old Baptist and some old Presbyterians and some old theology and some old political, uh, uh, you know, political theology and these kinds of things is um, there are no institutions like that currently in existence that, that I know of. 
and and so there is no institutional acceptance because there's no institution that exists so you you critique somebody who again is is uh, the lion's share of the story you know for the most part very faithful like a john mccarthy you critique him from the left and you've got somewhere to go you critique him from the right and and you can move to you know moscow idaho and and mm-hmm. other than that that's it that's i that's i that's the only institution i can even think of and the point is that's what we're trying to rectify. We're trying to say John MacArthur is awesome, but I think there are some other things where we can improve, um, not to his left, but to his right. And it's and it's kind of like, I, I think just a lot of guys have just determined that they are the bookend. There's, there's bookends to, to acceptable discourse and orthodox theology. And, and a lot of the concerned bros, they, I think they've deemed themselves for a very long time, they viewed themselves as the far bookend on the right, that anything past that is to fall off the edge of the earth. There's nothing past that that could ever possibly be deemed as legitimate. So no one's built past that. So there's no institutions past that. So if you critique from from that side of the equation, there's nowhere to be accepted because there's nowhere to go. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that that's a pretty good analysis overall. You know, I'm, I'm not one usually to ever say, you know, the right and left paradigm this shouldn't be applied, but I'd say one way I'd sort of tweak that a little bit in this conversation is, is not so much necessarily right as we think like political right and left, but further. The, what, what I was picturing in my mind was just sort of, you know, like ground has been plowed, you know, advancement has gone forward. We're so thankful for people like John MacArthur and Grace DeYou and Bill and Phil Johnson. Right. We're so thankful for G3 and the way that these men have, have held the line and, and pushed things forward for Apologia Ministries and James White. And then, you know, we're now we're living in a day and age where there are some, I think, very important and and thoughtful voices actually trying to uh, actually draw from the past to equip Christians in the modern era to go forward even further still in the application, particularly of what we could call practical theology and political theology. Again, on theology proper, our yes, distinctions yeah. are going to be small there. You know, we could debate eschatology right. here or there. But, you know, particularly when it comes to practical theology applied to living in the United States in the 2020s, we've seen a chorus of of voices trying to draw from the historical reform Protestant tradition, particularly on practical and political thought, that pushes things forward further than than some of these organizations have historically done. And and, and that's not necessarily a critique of them either. And I think that gets into our, our potential subject of touching on controversy and dealing with brothers who are, are different from you. Because I think you and I would, would hope that these guys would cheer us on as far as they can. And if they have, right. any, and if they have any, any warnings for us, it's not, it's not, hey, stop, don't go, don't build. It's just that like, hey, maybe, maybe I wouldn't build there, but you know, who knows, maybe that ground is solid. You know, let's let's go and see if we can build right. and take that area and take that solid ground. And so it's interesting, too, this crossed my mind on the fundamentalist fight, is that one of the key hallmarks of sort of your historic fundamentalists were these degrees of separation for people who disagreed on secondary and tertiary issues or even, you know, even beyond that. And so even so here you come along with a book, Fight by Flight. And that is a book that's certainly open to de- that's open to debate. It's not fight by flight is not um, Nicene orthodoxy, and so you know people can right. disagree on that. And yet we're seeing almost this this crowd evoke the sort of old school fundamentalist response of saying no, that's dangerous. No, that's this. No, don't do that. Instead of 
maybe weighing it on its own merits, disagreeing if you want to, but continue to go shoulder to shoulder with the brother as we're all trying to push forward into the the 21st century. And I, I don't mean to speak in too broad of school, historical terms, but the in the opening to R.R. Reno's book, Return of the Strong Gods, he had a really gripping point where he said he received a letter from a, a young guy, if I'm recalling this correctly, that essentially said sort of um, he longs to live in the 21st century, and yet we're still living in the 20th century in many ways in the, the 20th century last grasp of enlightenment liberalism and postmodernism continues right. to sort of like weigh as ankles around our feet. And then there's people like you and me and others who are saying, well, actually, you know what? We can cut these cords. We don't, we don't need postmodernism. We don't need enlightenment liberalism. We can recover sort of classical Christian conservatism and a, a classical view of the state that says there's no such thing as neutrality and, and drive forward towards a new and right. better, more comprehensive biblical understanding. That makes some people uneasy. It leads certainly to some disagreements. I would hope that it could lead to less, you know, infighting and controversy. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. That was really well said. It's, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, it's fine to disagree. But uh, what, I've, what I've found surprising is, again, it's, it's, the, uh, it's not, I disagree. You wrote this book, Fight by Flight, you know, here it is, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and you're making a case for leaving, you know, progressive places, right? That's the subtitle, why leaving, you know, godless places is loving godless places. And I expected, you know, that it would be, somewhat polarizing um because obviously you know there there are christians that live in blue places and not all of them are going to leave and so they're going to have some kind of argument for why they're not going to leave and that argument is going to be something to the tune of you know i disagree with your book um but again it's it's not disagreement uh that surprises me or surprises you it's um it's the claims of of uh not hey i disagree i think you know i think you you're off there or, or did you, you know, you got a good point, but I think you maybe didn't consider this element. Um, that's not what I hear. Uh, for the most part, what I hear is this is dangerous. Right. You're dangerous. Mm -hmm. You're dangerous. You're leading people demons, astray. Wolf-like. Right. And that, I think that's, that's what's so shocking is um, it's fine to disagree. I, you know, I, there's plenty of people I disagree with. Um, but the dangerous element, I think, is what's surprising. And that, to me, um, that's what makes me think, and maybe we can get into this a little bit, but that's what makes me think that it's not just that the underlining motive, if we get into why is there disagreement, um, if the why behind the disagreement was simply, um, it was purely 100% just a love for the truth and wanting as much theological, biblical accuracy as we could possibly muster, then praise God. Um, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's um, also, that it's not none of that. I think there really is genuine motives, right? The heart is often a mixed bag, mixed motives, that there are genuine motives to defend the truth of God and people being theologically convinced in a particular way. But I think in addition to that, there's covetousness, envy, pride. I, I, I think there's some sin. I really do. I think there's some sin. And I think that's why instead of I disagree, that immediately gets elevated to mark and avoid. Mm -hmm. What do you think? 
Yeah, well, I mean, again, we have to be we have to be so careful because we don't know people's hearts, right? But the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth. That's why speaks. I said I suspect. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> I no, and I yeah. yeah, and I'm just I'm doing my own disclaimers, <laughs> um, and so, but out of the overflow of of the heart, the mouth speaks, and you know I, I've noticed that along with um, critiques of of you or myself or just sort of you know sub sub tweet critiques of. Uh, of the younger group of us, you know, however much younger we are, it's critiques of things like, oh, they're just trying to build platform. They're just trying to make a name for themselves. They're just trying to drive controversy. And, you know, I've seen some of those and I certainly, I certainly would recognize that those could be valid critiques, but that that just raises the whole question of, well, then what does it look like to build anything new? You know, are are we supposed to just, is there some, you know, list of totally acceptable you know, secondary and tertiary positions or, or points of practical and applied theology, or even, you know, wisdom of living in this world that we all have to sign on to. And if we don't, and if we have different perspectives, and we try to advocate for those, we believe in them strongly, we try to bring others along, all of a sudden, we're platform building. I mean, I just, I think that's such a, a pejorative term, right. it's, it's not helpful. And then also, you know, Josh Dawes is the king of the threads of the everyone does this X, everyone does this Y, right? And so it's like everyone who agrees with me and is, and, is, and is using social media to say the things I agree with has the purest of motives and is just speaking the truth. And everyone who disagrees with me is trying to build a platform. And we just, we can't, we can't operate like right. that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't approach those who have come before us and have significant platforms, conferences, blogs, events, and look at them and retrospectively just accuse them of having built a platform. And at the same time, they, they shouldn't look right. at us trying to now join the fight because we were inspired by them. <laughs> and then, you know, say, you know, mm-hmm. oh, look, look at these platform builders. So I think you're right. I think there could certainly be a, a part of that in there. That's an unhealthy dynamic, but certainly is a dynamic that will continue to exist in the social media age. And so that's where I think ultimately that's just resolved on our knees before the Lord in our conscience before him. If it's in there, if that pride's in our hearts, we need to confess and repent of it. If it's in theirs, we can trust that the Holy Spirit's living and active and we'll work on them and just keep on going forward. Amen. Yeah, I, I saw um, I saw a tweet the other day. I thought it was really funny. All that was really well said, William. Thank you. Um, I, the tweet, it said, uh, those who believe that we lose down here are fighting hard uh, to win down here to make sure that we lose down here. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> so those who believe that we lose down here are fighting to win down here to ensure that we lose down here. And and I you know, I thought it was funny. Um but there, there there does seem to be a little bit of truth in that that like you know, it 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 can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um and mm. I think sometimes like like the, the, you have a certain mindset of I, you know, I, I, I've called it in the past in my preaching and stuff. I call it the Elijah uh, complex. You know, I'm, I'm the only one left, right? And then God, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, dude, I've, you know, I've got, I've got 7,000 other guys on the bench. I could replace you real easy, you know? And so like, there's, you know, 7,000 men who have not, you know, bowed their nail, their, their knees to ball or kiss the Asherah poles. Like, and so the point is that um, that's a good thing, like that, that we're supposed to celebrate, um, and we all struggle with it because we're all sinners, but we're supposed to celebrate, uh, when, when someone else is doing something well, like today, as we're recording, there's a guy, you know what? And I'm going to say his name because I want to practice what I preach here. Um, but he deserves, he deserves praise. And I want people to hear his name publicly so that they can go and follow him because, um, because he's legit. Um, his name is 
Jamie Bambrick. It's J-A-M-I-E Bambrick, B-A-M-B-R-I-C-K. He lives in uh, Northern Ireland, and he just posted this little video. I'm sure you probably saw it video. Where, uh, uh, you saw it, William, but where he he uh, he he just makes a really strong case for the for the general positive good, even towards individual uh, salvations and evangelism mm -hmm. of Christian culture. That Christian culture is a net positive. Did you watch that little video, William? I saw so I saw some of it. Yeah, Have I shot him a message right away just to encourage okay. him. Me too. Me too. I immediately sent him a message said, dude, I want to have you on my show. I retweeted him twice um, and reworded each time just so that I could do it twice and said, you got to follow this guy. And now I'm saying it on this podcast with you so that more people will hear him. Um, but he, he's got a YouTube channel. He's a pastor in Northern Ireland. You can follow him on Twitter. He's got like 200 something followers on Twitter and on YouTube. I think he's got like 4,000 followers. Um, but his videos, I like, I'll just say it straight up. It's better than mine. He's better. It's not just, it's one more guy doing good work. Uh, it's another guy doing better work. It's, you know, and the Lord is using this ministry to do this and do that. But I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm like, man, that was, it, it's, it's highly produced. It's strategic. It's, cre it's concise. It's clear. I'm not always concise. I'm pretty clear, but not always concise. So anyways, the point is, um, yeah, we, we should be celebrating though, is my point. There's room. And I think part of it, it gets into our just, this is theological. Do we believe that the pie can grow or do we believe it's a zero sum game, right? Do, yeah. Like, do we believe, and, and, and how does it work with glory? Right? Does God share his glory? Do we get to reign with the sun? There's a sense in which God will share his glory with no man. That's true. That is his divine glory that rightly and only belongs to him. But there is a, a sense in which um, we, we get to share also, right? We die with him that we might reign with him. And so there's a sense in which we get to reign and share in the glory um, of God with him as his sons, as a priest and kings, right? There's your hashtag king thing, you know, but as priest and kings, and, and we believe that the glory of God um, is, is not a fixed pie, that the pie grows. Um, and, and so when it comes to um, um, exalting other, other ministries and, um, and, and putting eyes on other guys who are doing good work, uh, we believe that we can do this um, with, without without necessarily losing something ourselves. It's not it's not that I gotta I've got to give up this in order for him to have that. No, we we believe that the pie can grow. And for me, especially with my eschatology, like I I believe that we're, we're going to have more and more progressively, slowly, but more and more Christians over time. And so uh, so even with ministry, we're going to need more teachers, and we're going to need more online teachers, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does get tiresome, uh, the disparagement of, yeah. well, I don't know, uh, he's platform building. It's like, but you have a platform. It, did, it, did it drop out of the sky or, or did someone build that platform? Right. So, right. so it's not platform building. It's, it's, it's said as though that's, that's just this inherent evil, platform building bad. But, but that's being said from platforms that were built Right. Others. So, that's so right. really it's no, you can't build a platform. That's that. And that's what we're pushing back on and saying, well, why? Why? Yeah. Well, I, I got it. I got a tagline for you, Joel. Post-millennialism. We've got more pie. <laughs> there we go. Second We've here. got more, we pie. more pie. We've got more but, pie. Yeah. I got a Bible verse too, though, that I think is incredibly applicable to this entire conversation. And it's uh, Luke 9. Uh, 49 and, and 50, 51, and let me read it. And then I think it, it applies directly to what we're talking about. 
Uh, John answered him and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Notice he doesn't say follow along with you. He says he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. And I, I just think that that really is a verse that that our whole coalition should take to heart that, you know, whether we see people, you know, approaching things in the name of John MacArthur or in the name of Josh Bice or in the name of, you know, James White or in the name of Doug Wilson or in the name of Joel Webbin, right? Like, I fundamentally believe all those four names I just said are all with each other. You guys will all stand face to face with Jesus Christ in glory. And that puts us with Jesus. Yep. And because that puts us with Jesus, we are not against each other. And and even there, Jesus was instructing his disciples to be more welcome and open to the fact that the ministry of the gospel was going to go forth under other people and through other people that weren't just the 12. I mean, obviously, that's the story of Acts in so many ways. And we see the spread of the gospel and you know, first century, you know, Christianity going forward with new churches and new elders and new names, you know, being commended as servants of the gospel. And so I think that's a that's a good biblical um, admonition for us to recognize that those who are not against us and to be there and to be clear there, those who would be against us would have to fall into the camp of people who we think are denying the truly fundamentals of the faith, th- that which you will not have a full gospel um, eschatology doesn't fall into that. Right. Christian nationalism doesn't fall into that. That means we're together. And so, you know, right. we should act like it down here. I agree. And I think that's a good word for all of us, myself included there. You know, I, I want to, I want to be more careful, um, when providing the critiques, um, of solid brothers that need to be provided. I'm going to be less careful. I'm still going to be careful in terms of accuracy, uh, but I'll be less careful in terms of tone uh, when I am dealing with someone like Russell Moore, sure. um, who I believe has gone apostate. And that's why. I, that's why I would, be, I would use reserve stronger language um, for David French, for Russell Moore, for those kinds of guys. Um, and then I want to use more careful language uh, when I disagree with someone who is not um, apostate, but somebody who is faithful and, uh, and has been tried and true. And you know what? I think that's part of it also. I think part of it is just the testing. I think it's just time. And, and that's, you know what, that one I think is fair to say, okay, well, but I, I've listened to this guy's ministry for 50 years and I've listened to your ministry for five. Um, and I still want to, you know, I, I want to give it some more time. I think, I think that's fine so long as you don't just completely write someone off or as long as you don't make unfair charges. Um, I think it's fine though to say I'm, I'm, um, it's not fine to say you're dangerous if they're not doing something dangerous. It's not, it's not fine to you know, publicly attack. Um, but it is fine to say, um, I like your ministry. I'm listening, but I'm listening with, uh, with a holy suspicion because um, your ministry is newer. And, uh, and there's not the decades of tried and true faithfulness uh, behind you. I, I'm fine with that. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we all need to have a healthy uh, skepticism. Christ commands us to be shrewd, and that's and to test the spirits. And I think that obviously the Bible provides a paradigm, as we see here in Luke nine, of unknown people who are preaching the true gospel but aren't 
part of the tight knit immediate community. And then we also get a paradigm of people who, who claim to be a part of the community, but then use their, use their words and use their influence to undermine doc, key doctrines, right? And that's where the harsher language for false teachers and that, you know, drawing that line on who's a false teacher when they say that they do adhere to all the tenets of Christianity, and yet they're, they're doing subtle things, doing underhanded things. So that's a paradigm that's important to keep in mind. But, you know, something that, that came to mind when you're talking about people's ministries, and I think this is a good, I mean, it's a good warning to me, so I'll preach to myself. It's a good warning to all of us, and that's, you know, we don't fundamentally just want to, in any way, shape, or form, mint or create a new class of celebrity pastors, right? Like we, the one, again, the disasters right. of the YRR, of Acts 29, where these ministries were built around celebrity pastors. So we want to be encouraging, you know, men and women to trust their local pastor. And then if for whatever reason, if you can't like fully trust your local pastor, then you, you should strive to find a church uh, under whose you know pastoral authority you can trust and grow. I, I, w- I do think that maybe some of the, the controversies that are surrounding you and others are, are probably due to the fact that some members of flocks you know, are hearing things you're teaching and then they're maybe going to their pastors with them and there's disagreement. So that's not your fault. I mean, quite frankly, that would be, you know, an admonition we should all give to those who hear what we have to say through, you know, media venues that's not coming from the authority of a pulpit. You know, you shouldn't look if you find uh, a great teacher who you love to listen to alongside your local pastor, you know, it would be unhealthy for you then to try to reshape your pastor into the mold of that teacher. You need to recognize that God has given you a certain local pastor that you need to trust to and submit to as far as is possible and expected by scripture. And, you know, you shouldn't be trying to recast them into the mold of your favorite YouTuber at all. And so that, you know, those out there who are listening to this know that if you can't, if, you know, if you can't, then, then, you know, you, you maybe need to spend some time with the Lord, you know, and then maybe though, if your convictions change, if your theological convictions change, then maybe it would be good for you to find yourself in a different church that adheres more closely to your convictions. And this gets back to everything else we we're talking about, Joel, which is in our day and age, so much of the division is going to come down to not so much convictions on paper, but disposition in real life. How are we applying those convictions to the life we find ourselves in today? Totally. And that's that's the show that we're doing right now. It's called, you know, it's our flagship show with Right Response Ministries. It's it's the show that I like was most passionate about starting <clears throat> and Lord willing, I want to start other, you know, I eventually want to have multiple uh, different shows, podcasts and multiple different contributors and have, you know, like more right response, be more of like a network, you know, with multiple shows and multiple uh, hosts. Uh, but, but theology applied is the flagship one, but th- that's, that's just it. That's my point. Theology applied such a simple concept, right? There's n- nothing, no novelty about it whatsoever. But, um, but, but of the recent past, uh, we, we've done theology in the abstract, but we have not had, like Wilson would say, theology coming out of our fingertips. And I think there's just a desperate hunger for that. And that's why I think some of some people are, they are leaving their churches. And I would say to those people, first, try to stay, do, do what you can to try to stay uh, and, and talk to your pastor and let, let him uh, have, have that opportunity as your pastor um, to to speak into your ear and, and and listen to those things, take it before the Lord, exercise humility. Um, but at the end of the day, if you feel like you you gotta leave because your convictions have actually grown that small uh, that strong, but it's over something that's you know it's not a primary theological issue. It's not denial of the Trinity or this or that. Um, then you should leave 
um, as much as you can uh, peaceably. You should leave respectfully. You should leave quietly. Not meaning that you don't tell your close friends in the church that you're leaving, but you're not making a ruckus. You're not making a fuss. Um, but here's the deal. You are allowed to leave. And I think that's part of the reason why some guys get upset is because people, some people are leaving. And, and I think some pastors think that they have more authority than they actually do. They think that, um, you're, you know, you're allowed to resign your membership at the church, uh, but the elders have to agree with you. N no, no. Um, because here's the thing about elders. Elders are very reluctant to agree with a member's reasoning for leaving that elder's church. Come to find out turns out um, you, you're allowed to leave a church and it, without it being a primary issue. You're allowed to leave a church and say, I love this church and I love the pastor. And I, and I, my first inclination was to stay and I tried to, and I feel like I've made an honest effort. I plan to leave quietly. I plan to leave respectfully, um, but it's not so much a difference in theology in the, in the realm of theory, what we believe but how we apply it. I think that these things that both me and my pastor, we both believe, I think that, that uh, faithfulness Monday through Saturday in believing these things, what that looks like is X, Y, Z. I think it looks this way politically. I think it looks this way culturally. I think it looks it. And, and this is where I really feel like the Lord's leading me. Now, sometimes you can just do it without your pastor being on board. But I've talked to several Christians where they just started doing it uh, the thing that they felt convicted about, a theology applied, and they started to be disparaged by their pastor. And, mm -hmm. and even publicly, their pastor in his podcast started, you know, without naming them, you know, like, but but very clearly, like, talking up, disparaging members of his own church for, uh, not because they were being divisive, not because they were, but just because they were, they were passionately, tr they were trying to build something. They, they were trying to start this ministry, or they were trying to start this business, or they were trying to start a school, you know, or they were trying to do this, or they were trying to do that. And, uh, and the pastors, um, you know, started disparaging them, you know, like, like making fun of, you know, Christian nationalism or making fun of post-millennialism or making fun of patriarchy. That's a big one. Like the pa your pastor starts, you know, saying, well, the trad wives, you know, like take, take aside for a moment. This is, it's not primary doctrine. It's not primary doctrine, but take aside for a moment, which uh, position is correct. If a woman uh, starts going to your church and she's wearing a head covering or, or she's been in your church for years and she starts head covering, e even if that's wrong, there's no command. There might be, R.C. Sproul said this, there might be a command in the Bible for a woman to cover her head in worship, but there is definitely not a command in the Bible for her, uh, forbidding her from covering her head in worship, which is why Vesta Sproul, you're ta we're talking about R.C. Sproul's wife now, who's still living, who still wears a head covering in worship, following the Lord and what she sees the scripture saying, she could be wrong, I could be wrong, and also following her late husband and the way that he led her in that particular area. So here's the question. You, you're a pastor and members in your church, they start listening to Joel Webin or they start reading this book or they start listening to that. And, and one day they show up with a head covering and, and you disparage them. Mm -hmm. like, like publicly, not just you pull them aside and their husband, pull his, the husband aside and talk to him private, but you disparage them on a podcast and start saying, well, the trad wives and Theo bro, like, then yeah, like, dude, of course they're going to leave your church. Right. <laughs> and you think that's, that's, <clears throat> you think that's the YouTuber's fault? Right. Brother, that's your fault. Right. Right. You know, that's, you know, yeah. I, I was given a piece of counsel to people in the pews, but you know, if I were to. Uh, give a general sort of perspective on how pastors operate along these lines. First of all, it would be 
that, you know, you know, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have it that the social media world is totally fake and nothing real comes through it. Or, you know, all your buddies are totally killing it on social media and everyone needs to read their latest TGC blog post, right? The reality is in 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 a day and age of digital media, people receive, you know, information through YouTube, through Twitter, through Facebook, through other platforms that speaks to them, not just because they got it off the internet, but because it speaks to them in their conscience and in their convictions. And then they open the scriptures and then they go explore it. And then they look for other faithful men who have taught these things before. And and then over time that could grow into a real conviction of theirs. And sure, maybe it began by listening to somebody on YouTube, but that in no way that's not an argument against the validity of that position, nor is that a justification right. for a pastor or somebody in authority to treat that person in a dismissive way. And uh, you know, another thing too is that, again, as I contend that so many of the divisions in evangelicalism and even conservative evangelicalism are dispositionally um, oriented, not so much the doctrine you hold to, but the disposition through which you adjudicate it and you, you know, engage the world. You know, we're not, you know, we are, I think, trying to push pastors and Christian leaders to broaden the Overton window of what is acceptable and then to give everybody the chance to exercise, you know, freedom of conscience under the Lord. And that's what's like if you're a pastor and all of a sudden you've got five guys in your church who are big on Christian nationalism, you should just thank God for that, I think, essentially, as long as they're not being divisive or stirring up controversy. And again, holding different opinions and even believing in them is not necessarily divisive. Right. That, you know, you need to have space right. for the people to wear head coverings, space for men to believe in Christian nationalism, space for people to believe in patriarchy, et cetera. But then if you start using your position of authority to attack that or disparage that, well, then, yeah, those people aren't going to feel like they're welcome there. Even if your teaching is incredible and your confession right. of faith is spot on, you, you don't want to sit and be belittled every week because of a secondary position you hold. Right. So I think that a lot of a lot of pastors out there need to wrap their mind around the fact that they are certainly not the only voice that gets to their flock anymore and how they deal with that is going to matter yeah. greatly. That's so well said. And I, and that goes back to all full circle, but it goes back to um making, you know, carving out space for for anybody and everybody to our left. Mm-hmm. But but very little of that same charitable spirit towards the right and now we're just applying it to the pastor surely surely if anyone um you know should should be surely the pastor should be able to if the pastor can have you know people in his church um you know let's say it's a calvinist pastor if he can have people in his church who aren't calvinist but are arminians Mm -hmm. you know um and and he's willing to to work with them and tolerate them and make a place for then surely he he can have someone in his church you know, if he, if he's got an egalitarian in his church, surely he can have somebody who's who would hold the biblical patriarchy. Surely, right. you know, like and and so I think that's that's what's that's what's going on right now. Is I I just I think that you know the Lord and His providence is is just dusting off some. some it's it's not even it's not even that we're going forward. We, I think we are in the big scheme of things pushing forward. But a lot of it is just going back. We're just going back to, I mean, the head covering thing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's silly. You know, like when, when you go back and you just, I mean, it's, everybody was wearing every, you know, every woman was wearing a head covering, the lion's share. I'm talking the lion's share in, until the 1900s. 
And I mean, and you had churches in America in the 1950s and 60s when, when second wave feminism was really starting to kick off. And some of them, it was orchestrated events on the same Sunday, all the women, they planned it and they did it in women's Bible studies. Uh, sewing groups is what they, you know, they would, but it was in that context of a women's only Bible study outside of the Lord's day or women's study uh, a sewing group or something like that. They, they made hatch the plan that on a particular Sunday, they would uh, go to church and during the sermon, they would all take their hat off together at the same time and throw it on the ground to smash the patriarchy. And, and so I'm just saying when that's the, that when that's church history, when that's church history from first Corinthians 11 to 1960 mm-hmm. head cover. And, and then somebody in 2023, uh, thinks, well, I, maybe I'll just try it out. Right. You know, and you're saying, and and your reaction is not just, I think that's wrong, or I don't think that's the best reading, or, I mean, just say it. If that's your view, if your view is uh, that that every Christian read the Bible wrong until the last 60 years, great, if that's your view. Um, But you need to acknowledge that. This is not novel. This is not crazy. And it's certainly not dangerous. And it's one thing to go after, you know, another pastor like me, some YouTube guy, but, but you start making members of your church and and female members women on top of it and i get as a pastor i get angry Mm -hmm. i I would like to meet with that pastor and have some words uh with that brother so i think yeah pastors are just it's like okay that you know this is the world that we live in now um there was once upon a time it's like okay you're the only baptist church in town you're the only Presbyterian church in town. And, pe- and and there was a time where people, you know, people wouldn't go five miles out, outside of the place where they were born. They would live and die within a five, you know, like 10 mile radius uh, their, their entire lives. And that's just, that's not the world that we live in anymore. I, I still think church membership matters. I'm a church membership guy. Um, I, I think that a, a covenant that you make with your local church, um, that, that it's significant, that it's not, it's not, not a trifle, um, it shouldn't be treated uh, lightheartedly. Um, but at the end of the day, I also think that uh, Christians, their conscience is clear to leave their church and, and it doesn't have to be a primary theological issue in order to merit a reason for leaving their church. And pastors, we need to come to terms uh, with the reality that, that because, of the, because of the success of the Great Commission, it's a good thing. Because the gospel has been so successful, predominantly in the West, um, our church members, instead of hearing one sermon from, from us, on the Lord's day or three Sunday morning, Sunday night, you know, Wednesday night, historically from us, they now get to hear from, from a host of people. And, and you look, you look, and we had that where you'd have the pastor, but then you have the traveling evangelist, right? Maybe it's a Whitfield or something. And he's kind of going up the coast, you know, and, and preaching. And I'm sure there was, there was this same principle that we're discussing that there were members in those churches, you know, who, who, and maybe some of them even voiced it. And maybe that wasn't respectful or the right thing to do, but they were, ah, I wish Whitfield was our pastor, you know, like, gosh, his sermon was so much better, you know, and, ah, and, and now it's just that same thing. But now it's instead of Whitfield, you know, you know, coming on horseback, you know, maybe once or twice a year, it's, it's, um, our, our people are hearing a ton of sermons and, and yes, we do need to guard. We, we need to guard as shepherds because some of those things that they're hearing actually are dangerous because they are heretical. They are bad, but a lot of what they're hearing, if our people are faithful, if they have discernment, if we've discipled them as pastors, well, then, then really what, what they're getting is they're just getting more Bible. They're just getting more doctrine. They're getting more sermons. And I think we should rejoice. So any, anyways, all that being said, any final thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I do, I think we should continue to, you know, modernity 
forces a lot of changes that on the church and we have to wrestle with and respond to them. And so, I mean, I, I could certainly imagine if I were a pastor in George Whitfield's day and he came through town, then all of a sudden I had members who were going to leave the community and travel along with Whitfield. I would say that's not a good idea. You know, you need to stay here and stay committed to your own local church. I mean, it's a wonderful aspiration to plug into a local church to grow up there, to raise your kids there, to be there for life. If that's, you know, I think, I think we should aim for those things as far, you know, live in peace as far as it depends upon you. So we should strive for the goals of being planted, of being rooted, you know, and, and that ties back even into your book of finding communities that you can plant and root in and be there for a long time and seek to grow and ask yourself, is this somewhere that I would feel good that my great grandchildren grow up. And I'll be honest right now, California is not somewhere right. that I have any confidence would be good for my great grandchildren to grow up in. So we should, we should strive for that, but we must use wisdom. You know, Joel, I, I saw again, sort of some dust up over what Jesus did or didn't command his followers to do about politics. And as I saw this engagement, it just really, it made me reflect that too many conservative Christians continue to have the red letter ethic just in a different way from the social justice folks, right. you know, and they look at only what Jesus said about what people should do. And all of scripture is Jesus speaking, you know, go back to the Proverbs, go back to the Old Testament, you know, dig up the wisdom of old from God and bring a comprehensive perspective for what it looks like to live in God's good world and bring that to bear today. Yes, we live in the new covenant, but there's no expiration on the biblical wisdom found under the old covenant, right? And so, we need to have, I think, a more right. comprehensive application of faithful Christian living that is not just tethered to the specific commands that we have recorded in the Gospels that Jesus delivered. Those are important, but all of Scripture right. is equally important. That's right. Yep. Red letter ethic. That's a really good way of putting it. That's, yep. And I think that's why the game has changed. You know, together for the Gospel, I think of that, you know, some of these things, you know, have, have pittered out in part because... Um, because of what, what I would call and others have called a theological maximalism. That's part of what fundamentalism was. Uh, there were, there were some great things about the fundamentalists, but part of it was, um, when the enemy's at the gate, when the city is under siege, um, you fall back behind the wall. You know, if they break that, you fall back to the inner wall, you know, and you, and then eventually everybody, you're just in a small circle, your backs are to each other. And, and it's, this is the hill to, that we're going to fight, live or die. You know, we're going to die on this hill um, to defend the virgin birth, inerrancy of scripture, bodily resurrection. And, and at that point, when, when you're under such attack, um, you, you, are you know, it's like if the house is on fire, you can't, you can't move all your stuff. So you're thinking, all right, I get, I get my wife and kids. M maybe I get the dog, you know, maybe I get this precious heirloom, you know, what, whatever. Um, that, that's kind of, that's what, in some sense, that's part of what the fundamental, you know, fundamentalism came out of. But, but now I think one of the reasons why we're divided and things like together for the gospel that that dog don't hunt is not because we don't want to be united on the gospel anymore. But I think this is actually a, a good thing. It's because um, we want to never talk about anything less than the gospel, but we want to talk about now we want to talk about more. Uh, that we're pushing our theology to the margins. That we're that we're saying, okay, but what does the Bible say about voting? What does it say about immigration? What does it say about economics? What does the Bible say about vaccines? What does it say about civil authority? What does it say about patriarchy, the husband's authority in the home? What does it say about children? What does it say about obligation to parents? What does it say about where you live? What does it say? And and so a lot of guys are starting to have those kinds of conversations 
Um, and I think part of the charge of it's dangerous, it's divisive, your platform building, it's, it's the theological maximal guys who are saying all of Christ for all of life. The Bible applies to this, it applies to this, it applies to that. And I'm not even confident that I'm applying it perfectly, but I'm over here trying to. That's, mm -hmm. that's the difference. I'm over here trying to have a serious conversation about the Bible and how it applies to this. And so it's, it's not that you got guys who are right and guys who are wrong. You got guys who are trying and guys who won't. I think that's the dividing line. Um, it's, it's the, I just miss the good old days of the together for the gospel, uh, conferences where we, where we talked about one thing, only one thing and we sang and and that's it. And I, right. I don't miss those days. I don't want to be divided. I don't like division. I don't. How blessed it is when brothers dwell in unity with one another. I want unity. Um, but I don't want unity if the cost for unity is truncated theology, minimalism. theological. If theological minimalism is the cost for achieving unity, then, then I don't want that unity. I want unity with theological maximalism. And here's the crazy thing. Um, the church has done it before, and I think she'll do it again. I, I really do. Our, our fathers, um, our forefathers, you look back, they had, they were way more robust in their theology. The average church grower knew way more about the Lord. And yet, and there were divisions over baptism, these kinds, but in general, you had way more robust theology for the average church go goer in the pew and more unity to, than, than you do today where there's way less a lower bar of theological aptitude for the average church grower and also less unity so i don't think theological minimalism is um is the only path to uh to christian unity i just refuse to believe that yeah well that reminds me of you know that what was known as the ecumenical movement you know that was born out of the the birth of evangelicalism particularly billy graham and the the, the spread of you know, revival style, you know, rallies. And, you know, that ultimately led to, you know, compromise on, on, on some fundamental issues as they were trying to kind of scale it down to a minimalism of, you know, accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, not even always getting the Lord part in there. And, you know, they're trying to work with Catholics and, you know, drifting in the wrong direction with, and you have Martin Lloyd Jones who stands against uh against graham and against john stott and says no we can't we can't compromise here and right. he's doing that because he's trying to maintain a maximalist position primarily on on the gospel and issues of salvation but i think it applies today and again something i see in the in the conservative political world that applies to what's happening in the church is that you know the the answers to former problems that perhaps worked well or were lauded in their times are not necessarily the ones that are going to fly for us today and that is not us necessarily in any way sort of discounting, you know, the good that forerunners did. You know, you can you can praise good done by Buckley and Reagan and realize that the the you know Reagan economics aren't gonna fly for us today. And that's not the answer, right? We can we can, you know, be thankful, I guess, for a certain degree of the the peace that, you know, provided the illusion of pluralism and classical liberalism and the, some right. of the ideas we got out of that. But we recognize today that's not a, going to confront in a robust theological way an increasingly pagan society. And it doesn't have to. I mean, there, there are areas we should and we can push forward. So finding, finding faithful answers to today's problems is not necessarily a disparagement 
of the past, but it's, again, it's, uh, it's fighting the battle for the faith once we're all delivered for the saints and a new generation and recognizing that nothing's ever settled. And so we have to come up with, with new ways to apply theology to our lives today with the new issues facing us. And we should give each other freedom to come up with some different answers along those fronts. Amen. William, great stuff, man. I'm blessed by your ministry. I'm blessed by, uh, your spicy tweets. They're not always spicy. Sometimes they're just really, really loving. And the spicy ones I think are loving too, but I'm just watching you from a distance, reading some of your stuff. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm just excited with what the Lord's doing with you. And I hope that we get to partner more someday. I wish there was some way I could get you down here to Texas, but keep on keeping on. Well, I'd, I'd love to come down and I'm, I'm thankful for you too, Joel. I appreciate that. And if you don't mind me just giving a note to your audience here on Twitter, I actually now have a subscription option. If anybody feels like they want to chip yeah, in and support it. me as I'm doing that work, you know, I'm going to provide, you know, exclusive content for people who subscribe. But really the best way to think about it is if you appreciate the work that I'm doing, this really is a way for you to support me in that work. And I, I welcome the partnership. Yeah, that's great. Same, same with us with Right Response. We always say, all right, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of, you know, uh, cost and value. Like we're going to do this and you'll get, you know, you're going to get some extra content. You'll get a book, you'll get the, you know, but a lot of it is, um, what you're doing is a ministry. What we're doing is a ministry. So, um, the, the biggest incentive is just saying, uh, it's not just tit for tat. It's also, um, we just need your support. And, uh, and I think, yeah, you're a guy worth supporting. So, uh, if you're not already doing that, guys, check out William Wolf. At least follow him on Twitter and prayerfully consider subscribing. What's what's the minimum? Can they subscribe for like three bucks or something like that? Five? Yeah, bucks? it's three dollars a month. So just take that take that money you were going to give to Starbucks. Yeah, thanks, Joel. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, that would, with with Starbucks, <laughs> man, that would get you a third of a coffee. Three bucks. <laughs> that wouldn't even get, right. get you a coffee. All right, thanks, William. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for having me.